And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, before I get started with my show, I want to make everybody aware of a current scam that's running the internet. People who have computer skills, but not much in the way of moral skills, have come up with another way to try to separate you from your money. I got a notification thanking me for subscribing to Norton 360 Deluxe for $349.99. They sent me a tax invoice. And it says, this is an invoice for your recent purchase. Your card linked with your Norton account has been auto-debited for $349.99. And your annual subscription has also been auto-renewed successfully. If you didn't authorize the charges, you got 24 hours to cancel and get an instant refund. The problem is the phone number they give is a bogus number. But it looks for all the world like a Norton invoice. So don't fall for it. Now, today is January 24th, 24th day of the year. 341 days remain till the end of the year. In uh, AD 41, Claudius is proclaimed Roman Emperor by the Praetorian Guard after they assassinated the previous emperor, his nephew Caligula, or Little Boots as he was called. Um, 914 saw the first Fatimid invasion of Egypt. Um, 1536, King Henry VIII of England uh, suffers an accident while jousting. That led to a brain injury that historians say may have influenced his later erratic behavior and possible impotence. Jousting is um, not for the faint-hearted. 1679, King Charles II of England dissolves the Cavalier Parliament. 1742, Charles VII Albert becomes Holy Roman Emperor. By that time, the empire was not holy, and it wasn't Roman, and it wasn't much of an empire. Uh, 1758, during the Seven Years' War, the leading burghers of Konigsberg submit to Elizabeth of Russia, which formed Russian Prussia which lasted till 1763. During the uh, 1817, a lot of soldiers of Juan Gregorio de los Heras are captured during the, the action of Pachuta and what was known as the Crossing of, of the Andes. Um, 1859, United Principalities of Moldavia and Wallachia, later named Romania, is formed as a personal union under the rule of Dominator Alexander Leon Cusa. 1915, World War I, the British Grand Fleet battle cruisers under Vice Admiral Sir David Beatty engage Real Admiral Franz von Hipper's battle cruisers in the Battle of Dogger Bank. Now, that particular uh, naval engagement The uh, was based on the British intercepting and decoding German wireless transmissions, and they had knowledge of a German raiding squadron that was heading for Dogger Bank, and they intercepted the raiders. Now the British uh, Grand Fleet was larger and faster than the German squadron. The German squadron fled for home when uh, the British surprised them. Uh, the British uh, disabled the Blucher the rearmost German ship, and the Germans put the British flagship HFS Lion out of action. And due to inadequate signaling, the remaining British ships stopped the pursuit to sink Blucher. By the time it had been sunk, the rest of the German squadron had escaped. Um, the German squadron got back to its harbor with some ships in need of extensive repairs. The Lion made it back to port, but was out of action for several months. British didn't lose any ships, had a few casualties. 
Uh, after the British victory, both navies replaced officers who were thought to have shown poor judgment and made changes to equipment and procedures because of failings were observed in that particular engagement. The uh, now we had a temporary income tax to fund World War One. In 1916, in a case called Bruce Schaber versus Union Pacific Railroad, the Supreme Court declared the federal income tax constitutional. There's never been a tax a government hasn't liked. Got a chance to tax the entire population of the country, to enrich politicians and shovel money out the door to other countries, is something our government just could not ignore. Uh, 1918, the Gregorian calendars introduced in Russia by decree of the Council of People's Commissars. Uh, 1933, 20th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution is ratified, changing the beginning and end of terms for all elected federal office, uh, offices. 1935, Gottfried Kruger Brewing Company starts selling the first canned beer. And NASCAR was never the same. The uh, 1939, the deadliest earthquake in Chilean history strikes, strikes Chilean, kills about 28,000 people. 1942, World War II, we bombarded Bangkok, or the Allies did, leading Thailand and under Japanese control to declare war against the U.S. and the U.K. 1943, FDR and Winston Churchill concluded a conference in Casablanca. 1946, the United Nations General Assembly passes its first resolution to establish the United Nations Atomic Energy Commission. 1960, Algerian War. Some units of European volunteers in Algiers staged an insurrection known as the Barricades Week. During which they seized government buildings and fought with local police. 1972, Japanese Sergeant Soichi. Yokoi was found hiding, hiding in the jungle in Guam. He'd been there since the end of World War II. He was the last Japanese soldier in the field. Uh, 1984, Apple Computer places the Macintosh personal computer on sale in the U.S. The... Uh, 1987, about 20,000 protesters marched in a civil rights demonstration in Forsyth County, Georgia. You know, uh, back when I was in school, there was all kinds of unrest about civil rights. And I asked a couple of the bigger mouths uh, while they were protesting. And they said, well, it was a chance to be a leader chance to have people listen to them. I said, do you really believe all this stuff you're spouting? And they said, that doesn't matter. We're leaders. There was one young lady who was an absolute royal pain in the butt, kept disrupting classes and proclaimed herself to be the leader of her people. Of course, her people didn't know anything about that, but can't have them all. 2018, former Dr. Larry Nasser sentenced to 175 years in prison for being found guilty of using his position as, as a team doctor to sexually abuse female gymnasts. And that came to quite a, um, a scandal. Now, we've been talking about Zachariah Sitchin and the Anunnaki and You know, his research has opened up doors to uh, areas of study that nobody dreamed about. The, uh, as, as I mentioned in the previous show, an approach to explanation that's more logical, more powerful, and interprets facts in legitimate new ways uses a different mindset than what's already in place. And Sitchin's work definitely shifted the explanatory paradigm. 
His study of the records and related material provided him with data he used to draw out the explanations that we've been talking about on this show. Dedicated and fact-oriented journalist is trained to verify observations and information, not merely follow hunches, and that's exactly what Sitchin was doing. He was verifying observation and information. Now, it has to be emphasized that it was body of well-educated scholarly individuals who'd carried out the original expeditions and explorations and published their redactions and translations of the artifacts that were found and studied. And their discoveries became the substance of written reports that are still used today, uh, some of the, as the only legitimate sources. The problem is that when you got uh, a leading light in the education field who has written something, even if it's been peer-reviewed, that becomes the standard against which everything else is reviewed. And that, of course, makes it difficult for new ideas to see the light of day. Because if it doesn't agree with what's already been written, it can't be right. Now, Sitchin was confident that the, what he wrote about and talked about in his presentations was accurate because he knew his research was thorough and his interpretation of the evidence was logical and substantiated in ancient facts. And as more and more of his research work unfolded, he not only became to understand the technological context in which these first earth settlers lived and worked, but he also began to unravel the structure of their society especially the leadership structure on Nibiru and its transplanted version on Earth. And he learned that the key players in the Nephilim Anunnaki story were um, in actuality the, the royal family, as it were, um, was the original royal family. One of the most important components of the interplanetary society was how dynastic responsibility and power was passed from one generation to the next. The rules of succession became important harbingers of difficulties when they applied to Nephilim offspring on Earth, which generated problems that rose in the beginning when one of the first Nephilim to arrive on Earth struggled to adjust as to why he couldn't inherit power on Earth and over its inhabitants. If he was on Nibiru, he would have come to power, but not here. Now, Sitchin made a most important contribution when he gave us insight into the celestial dynasty of the Nephilim, beginning with a fresh interpretation of the reference in the ancient sources to the gods of heaven and Earth, the ones called the ancient gods. They were... Uh, so called the olden gods of the epic tales. One Mesopotamian inscri um, inscription enlightens us further when it states, Whatever seems beautiful, we made by the grace of the gods. Now, Sitchin points out that the archaeological evidence supports what was written about the Anunnaki. They were very powerful beings, capable of feats beyond mortal ability or comprehension. And by comparison to humans, our stature and Cranial features were enormous. They generally stood at least 12 feet in height and had elongated cranium. He describes them, uh, he said, these gods not only looked like human but ate and drank like them and displayed virtually every human emotion of love and hate, loyalty and infidelity. In fact, it's more accurate to say we look like them, have similar traits and behaviors to these beings from another planet. Now, the first scholars to translate the Nephilim Anunnaki stories referred to the key players as gods of olden times. And Sitchin points out in his writings he used the god label only because of its general acceptance, not because the Nephilim or the Anunnaki thought of themselves as gods. They added that Earth was under the direction of beings who were technologically more advanced and whose statue was such that they had a commanding presence as contributed to a belief system that the Anunnaki and Nephilim were godlike beings worthy of worship. But in actuality, their behavior didn't warrant this reverence. They may have been honored because they were 
teachers of skills that earthlings are both thankful to receive because exhibited technological knowledge, but the concept of worship as we understand it wasn't the way it was meant to be in ancient times. Sitchin went on to t- say it was paganism that put the notion of divine beings into our culture and understanding. The idea that gods existed up there filtered into Greek and Roman beliefs and obviously has its roots in the ancient Anunnaki stories. And the understandings that gods existed on earth but came from above persisted long after these entities left this planet. And his writings gives gives us a remarkable body of information about the individuals who comprised the Nephilim dynasty. His insights into the Nephilim are especially important because this information isn't found in any traditional literature, although discussions in more recent print and video materials are beginning to rectify this serious gap in traditional historical works. Now, Sitchin noted that a total of six males and six females comprised the supreme pantheon, or great circle of these so-called deities. The royal family consisted of a king, one daughter, and two sons and their offspring. Their hierarchy was defined by a numerical rank assigned to the males. Consisted of the number 10 and its six multiples with the prime number 60. He briefly explained the numerical numerical ranking. They assigned the highest rank of 60 to Anu, the king of Nibiru, and subsequent ranks of 50 to Enlil and 40 to Enki. The lives of these dynastic individuals were included in the great circle, given the numerical rank associated with that assigned to the king and his male offsprings. Now, Sitchin was able, by examining the clay tablet records, to reach an understanding about the role each played on earth, preparing the landscape for occupation and the subsequent building of settlements was Inky's job, acted as the shepherd of humans after his creation efforts produced intelligent workers, and for some 29,000 earth years he directed the important mission of the Nephilim and Anaki on earth, and that was the mining of the gold needed on the Biru. Now Enlil, on the other hand, took over the gold transport mission and spaceport supervision and he administered the crucial communication link between Earth and the Biru. You might call him an operations manager and seemed to have little to do with the humans other than keeping order. Then Herzog proved to be a valuable peacekeeper and mediator of rivalries that existed between her siblings. The king, Anu, did what kings throughout history have done. They oversee, make the final decisions, arbitrate disputes, issue decrees, and carry out ceremonies. Now, the Sumerian tablets tell that Enki experienced considerable consternation when Enlil arrived on Earth. To understand the reason behind his behavior at that time, we need to review the secession rules that were brought to Earth by the Nephilim. On the Biru, dynastic power was passed from one generation to the next according to specific procreation rules. All members of the ruling family were enjoined by these long-standing rules specifying who got the dynasty when a king either abdicated or died. Now understand, we're not talking about ethereal gods. We're talking about actual living beings. And whatever may have been their lifespan, they eventually died. The burial succession rule states that the designated heir, the offspring who received the ruling responsibility and hold territorial power and control over all major decisions within the domains of the realm must have been conceived properly to preserve the correct bloodlines. The ruling responsibility extended only to a qualified firstborn male in each generation, children and then grandchildren. In the case of Anu's progeny, only the son born to his half-sister was eligible to inherit the realm. Whether within wedlock or not, a son born first, but not by the king's half-sister, was not in line to receive the succession benefits, especially if a properly conceived second son came along. And from there, the Egyptians uh, demonstrated their understanding because quite often the pharaohs married their sisters. Now, Enlil was conceived by Anu with his half-sister Antu, which gave him the right of succession on the Biru and eventually on earth. 
Now, before Enlil's arrival on Earth, Enki believed that Anu's dynasties would be apportioned to, so that each of his sons received a planet to rule over. He thought he'd inherit Earth, and Enlil would inherit Nibiru. But Anu must have made a delib- uh, deliberate decision before he left Nibiru to replace Enki as Lord of Earth, which had been Enki's title up to that time. A mutiny had broken out at the gold mines, and that was the reason Anu had to come down to, to Earth. Could the mutiny problem have indicated to Anu that Enki's leadership was flawed or lacked proper control, which permitted the problem at the gold mine to deteriorate to such a serious stage as to become a mutiny? Certainly that appeared to be the case. We'll probably never know the actual answer to that question, but uh, the Sumerian tablets didn't give us uh, Anu's reasoning for his decision. We can only surmise that the underlying reason Anu made his decisions he did was because he lost confidence in Enki's ability to be an effective leader and eventually carry the full responsibilities of being a king. Now, Enki's authority might have been restored if Anu had taken Enlil back to Nibiru, but that didn't happen. The king's decision to bring Enlil down to earth made it quite clear to Enki his position on earth was being usurped. And he became so incensed with this decision he argued with his father and threatened to return to Nibiru. And, according to the tablets, Anu was afraid if Enki went back to Nibiru, he'd cause problems there. His solution to this situation was to arrange to have his two sons draw a lot so that each would get a specific portion of Earth as his own domain. Eventually, it was decided to draw lots and let chance decide how it shall be. That division of authority that ensued is repeatedly mentioned in Sumerian and Akkadian tablets, both. In the drawing of lots, I think he got Africa, the continent that held the mining activity. Yes, <coughs> Excuse me. This all gave him, uh, also gave him uh, hegemony over Egypt, which included Giza's Plateau Sphinx and the Great Pyramid. The acquisition became very important later as Nephilim Anunnaki history unfolded with the domains on earth assigned by chance not by Anu's decision the king could at least tell himself he didn't slight either son the drawing of lots by was Anu's way to responding to the tantrum thrown by Enki but it was clear that whatever plans Enki had made for the earthly planet was, were erased his position as supreme leader of all the earth was over lost his title Lord of Earth. His name became E.A. Now, Enlil's presence on the Earth not only raised jealousy and hostility between the two half-brothers, but developed into open rivalry that placed, played out through the next several generations. The intense rivalry of these two clans eventually took an unusual twist with an interesting joint decision made by the first-generation offsprings of the two. At a time of a pending of a pending crisis, a son of Enki and a son of Enlil joined forces against another son of the Enki lineage, Marduk, Enki's firstborn, who believed he alone was entitled to ruling power. When Marduk bragged about going after global power and taking control of the Sinai spaceport and all of Sumer, he acted in his belief he was entitled to all the ruling power on Earth, but this coalition formed by a son from each clan worked out a plan to to disrupt his pl- uh, Marduk's plans. And this important episode was talked about later in the Sumerian tablets. The relation between Enki and Enlil for centuries was tinged with all the angst and sibling rivalry often mentioned uh, that arises within a privileged family, especially when a valuable legacy awaits the designated heir. When birthrights are at stake and when the losing individual's future power to bequeath a valuable dominion to it own heirs is destroyed, there's a plethora of emotions that ensue. And this was the same case with these visitors from another planet. Uh, the tablets report that Anu had for his kingly realm the expanse of the heavens, and he enjoyed occasional visits at his abode up there from Nephilim leaders, and even a few mortals were given the... Uh, great honor of being allowed to visit the king. And these visits were the purpose of the visitor to confer with him in his role as king, sometimes on individual issues and 
or when a crisis arose on earth. And Anu also came down to earth to celebrate ceremonial events. According to Sitchin, Anu came down for at least one ceremonial visit every 3,600 years. That was every revolution of Nibiru's full orbit at the time when the planet was approaching the Earth's vicinity. His ceremonial or state visits typically prompted activities of grand proportions. His house on Earth, known as Eruk, was so well appointed that the tablets described it as having irresistible charm and unending allure. And it was called by the Sumerian name Iana, House of An, or the House for Descending from Heaven. And for his ceremonial visits, he brought his sister, also his spouse, Antu. His purpose for one particular visit was initially ceremonial, but also needed to resolve a dispute between Enki and Enlil. That took place after Enki lost his ruling rights over Earth. And according to Sitchin, his visit held the specific purpose of hearing a strong objection voiced by Enlil against Enki. For the ceremonial event, the seating positions of the Nephilim royal family were very clearly described in the tablet text. It said the visit was a the occasion was a visit for one of these deliberations that determined the fate of gods and men on earth every thirty six hundred years. Anu sat in the seat of honor, near him sat Enlil, then Hursarg, his daughter, sat on an armchair. Did not mention Inki. When Sitchin observed from a close study of the tablet materials was an Inky plan to undertake a huge refurbishing effort to restore its flood-ravaged city, Eridu, so it continued to be his residential city. And this was to take place well after the Great Flood. That was um, the one written about in the Bible that uh, Sitchin determined happened about 11,000 years ago. And according to Sitchin constructed timeline, this effort to rebuild cities took place about 7,400 years ago. And part of the dispute launched at the outset of the, the discussion with Anu was that all the other cities inhabited by Anunnaki also wanted the same rebuilding opportunity, but didn't want to wait until some indefinite time in the future to implement their rebuilding activities. And we voiced a complaint to Anu against Inky's decision to focus first on his own city because the reality was that Inky didn't want to disseminate some special information that he can control over to Enlil and the other Nephilim. These were called the divine formulas. Enlil made accusations against Inki about withholding this valuable information that contained more than 100 aspects of civilization that Inki would keep from Iridu, in Iridu. Now, when heard the case presented, he gave his decision. Inki must share the divine formulas with the other gods so that the other gods could also establish their urban centers. In other words, the elements of civilization were to be granted to the whole of Sumer by Edict of Anu. And several of Sitchin's books indicates the elements of civilization reported to have appeared suddenly. If the elements of civilization which Enlil referred were the same ones that were identified by the Sumerian scholars, then this was an important body of information for both the Anunnaki and the earthlings. Enlil's complaint, however, may have been motivated more for the purpose of appeasing the other gods who wanted this information to develop their own cities, more than to give earthlings the benefits of civilization. Keep in mind, earthlings were uh, a worker class created specifically to serve the Anunnaki. The outcome of the dispute was a proclamation by Anu, he decided to order Inki to release the formula so that all of Sumer could benefit. And the decision to share this information about civilizations or attributes gave us an insight into Anu's role as supreme decision-maker and ruler of the Nephilim and the Anamaki, both on Earth as well as on Nibiru. Interestingly enough, no pictorial imagery has been found in any of the numerous tablet collections depicting what Anu looked like. Sitchin mentions that several of the elements of the ceremonial sequences uh, held around Anu's visits are recognizable on tablet uh, pictorial depictions, but not a single cylinder seal pictogram is found in Sitchin's work that identify Anu himself. Now, while the sign for Anu was a star that stood for heaven and divine being and was used in written cuneiform texts, his insignias were the tiara, that's the divine headdress, 
the scepter, symbol of power, and the staff that symbolizes the guidance provided by the divine shepherd, so to speak. We see these identifying symbols of kingship used in religions and royal pageantries of this day, such as that of the British royalty at weddings and other royal ceremonies. So the question becomes, is it possible that use of these objects in the royal processions derives from very long-standing practices begun in ancient times by the Nephilim? Suddenly, uh, I mean, certainly it seems that uh, there's nothing new. Now, Enki, whose name at first meant Lord Earth, was given this designation because he la- when he landed on Earth, and that was his name and his role as leader of Earth's settlement process and when he held full responsibility for Earth's development. Now, according to Sitchin and what he determined from the tablets, Enki was a brilliant scientist and engineer. And because of his expertise, he was also known by the nickname Nudimud, which means he who fashions things. Now, he was also Anu's firstborn son on the Biru, born of a not frowned on liaison by Anu with one of his six concubines, but not with his sister. And while there's no censure of a king having the sexual services of concubines, this alternative liaison offered Enki and affected Enki by negating his position and future legacy under the rules of succession particularly after Enlil was born to by Anu's proper relationship with his half-sister. When Enlil came to Earth, Enki's name was changed to Ia, whose house is water. Sitchin said that Ia appeared to have accepted Enlil's succession status, but some who studied the tablets' uh, evidence believe a power struggle continued between Ia and Enlil, which may have continued well into Earth's history. The uh, Sumerian scholar Samuel Kramer titled one of the ancient texts he studied, Enki and his inferiority complex. Enki held the requisite skills and knowledge that supported his work as a master engineer and hydrologist. His first terrifying activities to build a great house called Iridu, House of Going Afar, on land raised well above the water level. Sitchin also talked about another translated tablet, that was named the myth of Enki and Iridu, and it chronicles uh, Enki's building projects. The requisite language said the lord of the watery deep, the king Enki, built his house. In Iridu, he built the house of the water bank. The king Enki had built the house like a mountain. He raised it up from the earth, and a good place he built it. Uh, great pains were taken in the Sumerian text that Sitchin highlights to discuss Enki's house, which remained Enki's seat of power and center of worship throughout Mesopotamian history, built on ground specifically raised above the waters of the marshlands. After uh, landing on earth, he also is reported to have built dikes to control incoming water from the Tigris River. Enki's water-related uh, affiliation was the forerunner of the Greek adaptation of that role, uh, centuries later for Poseidon. The underlying theme of Enki's relationship to water, though not identified in more than just a few words, was his concern for having a pot- potable water supply to sustain life for all the occupants of his household. <coughs> that was God, humans, and animals. And his landed holdings, the, the gardens and the orchards. And with sufficient safe water supply for consumption, irrigation of plant-based foods was important for survival. And his worry about water quality is well-founded because of regions like Sumer, where rain is forthcoming only in cool weather, irrigation using good water was and is necessary to keep gardens and food-bearing tree uh, crops alive in the spring and summer growing seasons. If you read the text carefully, with an academic eye, it reveals that Enki was what we would now call a hydrologist. His knowledge of water behavior on the landscape is notable as it made it possible for him to change the landscape to rectify flooding problems. Of necessity, he also developed the knowledge we would today associate with a climatologist, the one who understands long-range problems of fluctuations in rainfall and temperature and wind patterns and the ability to use this data to predict terrible storms. 
He also understood that getting control of surface water was imperative for the health of the earthlings and for the Nephilim as well. As I said many times, these are not ethereal gods. They, they are living creatures. Swampy surface waters are a breeding ground for mosquitoes and other insects, some causing disease as well as for aquatic creatures who thrive in sun-warmed water-collecting basins. Sitchin pointed out that Enki was responsible for purifying the waters of the Tigris River and building a canal to allow a connection between the Tigris and the Euphrates, rivers in the lower reaches. These were Enki's efforts to control surface water inputs to the delta to alleviate the swamps. And these were feats of engineering that became characteristics of Enki's dedication to making his own and other earth-based settlements of Sumer into thriving, sustainable habitats. Well, he was also in charge of the moon, perhaps stemming from the fact that the moon is related to tides. And according to tablets written in the first person, Enki also took credit for introducing the plow and the yoke, building the stalls and erecting sheepfolds, bringing to earth the arts of brick-making for building cities and dwellings in metallurgy. Sitchin also celebrated Enki by putting what's believed was Enki's first person report preserved through history in a long narrative poem in a separate book he called the, the Lost Book of Enki. Drawing together this first person account contained on a nearby perfect set of Sumerian tablets, Sitchin allows the voice of Enki to relate his own activities in his own words. Now, maybe the most noteworthy accomplishment of Enki or any of the ancient ones was the creation of earthlings by genetic engineering. Now, this event is of monumental importance to the development of Earth and certainly to us, the humans who form his legacy. The Sitchin discussion of this contribution by Enki and his half-sister Nin Hersog is so important that... Uh, It has been given a special place in Sitchin's writings. Another, maybe the most unique contribution made by Enki involved his creative way of saving a small seed of humanity in the face of what the Bible refers to as the deluge and history calls the Great Flood. Now, Enki was privy to discussions in an important Nephilim gathering called the Assembly of the Gods. A gathering called by Enlil after he received a report from the Agigi those Anunnaki astronauts circling and monitoring Earth from spaceships. And uh, this report told of the increasing instability of the ice sheet on the landmass of Antarctica. The report indicated the ice sheet would be completely destabilized by Nibiru's upcoming return to Earth's vicinity on its orbit around the sun. And it was predicted to slide into the ocean, no doubt indicating that it would create a huge tsunami that would seriously inundate the land masses that bordered the Indian Ocean. And the extensive area predicted to be inundated constituted inhabited lands of the Anunnaki and all the human settlements as well. In other words, the very arrival of Nibiru could be a death sentence for the human race. Now Enlil told the Nephilim and the Anunnaki to keep this information from the humans. Under the oath he demanded they adhere to, no Nephilim was allowed to tell humans about the upcoming events. The Nephilim and the Anunnaki were ordered to assemble at the spaceport at Sippar so that they could lift up to safety in their spaceships when the, the flood hit. He expected the humans to perish. Enki at first held back his vow of silence and then he was forced to agree with the Nephilim rule that it required him to obey Enlil's edict. But at the same time, he began to figure out how to save those few humans he had created. According to tablet records, the majority of earthlings had been engaged in behavior that seriously upset Enlil. <clears throat> it was said very clearly that they had gotten out of hand, and he regarded his natural disaster as a way to accomplish his desire to eradicate all humans. The issue was a that was foremost on Enlil's list of grievances against the population of humans was that several Anunnaki saw the daughters of men as beautiful and married them. Enlil believed the intermarriage of Anunnaki and humans was immoral. Now, Enki, on the other hand, had various reasons for not wanting humans to be purged from the earth, the most important being humans were his creation. And Sitchin believed Enki had genuine affection for many humans, 
And although Enki was enjoined by the Nephilim rules of the assembly of the, of the gods and therefore forced to keep his oath of silence, he creatively figured out how to do both. Follow the Nephilim rules to keep his pledge of silence and save a very small handful of humans. Being the resourceful plotter that he had proved to be in other endeavors, he figured out a solution that would communicate his plans to one of his favorite humans, a priest by the name of Noah. He designed a way to give Noah instructions on what had to be done, giving no reason, just directing. Nicky held a special regard for Noah, who was a righteous man of pure genealogy. And quite often through the Sumerian tablets, the importance of bloodline is stressed numerous times. Now, Noah was known in the tablets by various names. He was a priest who followed religious practices faithfully, as demonstrated by his regular visits to the temple for prayers several scheduled times every day. And Inky made sure that he arrived at the temple just before Noah at one of these scheduled times. He went behind the curtain altar and sat down looking at a wall. And he began to talk to the wall as Noah entered. And Noah, of course, thought he was hearing the voice of God and listened intently. And Inky told the wall of the coming flood and began giving dimensions for the building of a submersible ark to be built in a very short period of time. And he also told the wall that this submersible vessel was to carry the seed of all living things, not just animals, just their seed, for use in replenishing earth after the flood. Only a few live animals needed for food were to be carried on toward the vessel. The only passengers on the vessel were to be Noah's family and a navigator who was to assist Noah as the flood waters dissipated to locate the landing site that Inky had designated. And a navigator would be needed to locate the highest peak in the northern part of Mesopotamia. High altitude location would emerge first in the receding flood waters. And history tells us that the selected location was the area of the Twin Peaks known as Mount Ararat. And I went into some detail in a discussion of um, that in a book called The Ararat Anomaly. You'll find it shortly on uh, Amazon, along with the rest of my books. While the remnant humans were in a watertight ark built to inky specifications, the Nephilim and some Anunnaki were huddled in multiple spacecraft aloft, eventually becoming thirsty and hungry. And some of the female Anunnaki wept when they looked down at the tumultuous waters. The sight of earthlings drowning in the rolling waters of the earth below their craft was emotionally wrenching. And Sitchin's uh, translation of the Sumerian tablets tells us that having to leave the planet's surface, the Nephilim suddenly realized how attached they'd become to it and its inhabitants. Ishtar, and his granddaughter, cried out, The olden days, alas, are turned into clay. Anunnaki, who were in, their, in her craft, uh, wept with her. When the waters receded, the ark was safely guided to land on the taller of the two Ararat peaks. Sitchin words are clearer than any paraphrase could be, so a sacrifice was offered by Noah's entourage to celebrate their thankfulness at being returned safely to dry land. As soon as after Isis or Noah had landed, he slaughtered some animals and roasted them on a fire. No wonder the exhausted and hungry gods gathered like flies over the offering. And suddenly they realized that man and the food he grew and the cattle he raised were essential to their own survival. When at length Enlil arrived and saw the ark, he was wroth, but the logic of the situation and Enki's persuasive uh, persuasions prevailed. Enlil made his peace with the remnants of mankind and took Astrahasis and his craft up to the eternal abode of the gods, he got to see the king. In line after being pacified by Inky and others, it's reported that he considered his vengeful attitude. In his remorse, he uttered a well-recognized biblical statement, go forth and multiply. In little realized the earthlings were invaluable to the Nephilim and the Anunnaki, and he decided humans should be commanded to repopulate the earth. Well, you have to wonder, if only Noah and his three sons were aboard the ark, as is normally reported, how could earth be repopulated? Where would the females come from to provide procreation capability? Well, in his search, Sitchin found an account by the historian Berosus that says, um, at the last moment, friends or helpers of Noah and their families also came on board. And after the ark landed... These other people given this directions to find their way back to Mesopotamia. 
And if the report is true, and it's certainly a logical uh, position, it's just one more example of how diligent Sitchin was in dealing with issues that were reported in the records that needed to be clarified. Search till he found answers in obscure sources for his assistance and benevolence to humans as well as his other accomplishment. Uh, Inky was mankind's greatest benefactor. Now, Enlil was viewed as the most formidable son of Anu, not just because of his birthright, but because of his leadership style. His name went Lord of the Airspace. He also held the title Lord of the Command, which often is narrowly interpreted to focus only on his responsibilities to manage the spaceport. The scope of his role in that command function was seriously enlarged after Earth's domains were assigned by the drawing of lots. Enlil's domain encompassed all the land masses north of the Mediterranean Sea and the Indian Ocean. Enlil also held the prestigious position of leading the session of the High Council, responsibility given to him by Anu. Enlil presided over these gatherings alongside his father, the Beru's king. That position uh, beside Anu signified his assigned power. And these meetings were held in the divine precinct of Nippur, the city where Enlil provided or resided, rather. Obviously, all those around him not only accepted Enlil's position, but showed acquiescence to his leadership, which manifested with a stern and unyielding style. It's also entirely possible that those he commanded feared him because of his uncompromising manner. The Anunnaki called him the ruler of all the lands, and made it clear that in heaven he's the prince, on earth he's the chief. One of his important responsibilities was his command over the Bond Earth Heaven. The bond called Duranki was some sort of technological connection between Earth and Nibiru. Maybe it was voice transmission technology such as modern space explorers who went to the moon used to communicate with mission control. If you remember the now famous message Houston the Eagle has landed, this Anunnaki technology also included the application of information from celestial charts and orbital data displays called the Tablets of Destiny. Function of these tablets obviously were complex. We can surmise they use a very special and powerful computer. Sitchin talked about all these space-related control functions being monitored and directed from Enlil's Mission Control Center, Nipper. It was where the comings and goings by the space vehicles and communication with Earth and Nibiru were maintained, while both planets pursued their own destined orbits. It also said Enlil could raise the beams that searched the heart of all the lands. Isaac could scan all the lands. Now what this refers to is not explained further in the tablets, but these descriptions remind us some recently developed modern technology. Could this be something like heart technology, high-frequency active oral research program that emerged in the late 20th century? Developed in 1990 by the Air Force, it's a radio beam array system that sends beams skyward to bounce off the ionosphere. They're not light beams, per se, but microwave frequencies that excite areas of the ionosphere, supposed to increase the accuracy of communication and for surveillance. These technologies have been linked by critics to control reverse weather, weather which certainly is a possibility. Another possible an analogy to the Anunnaki Earth scanning capability is the Google Earth satellite scanning technology. And while we have no detailed ancient descriptions from which to draw accurate or even approximate parallels, Sitchin believed that the modern science is beginning to develop technologies that were like those in use in ancient times. And that's a very intriguing thought. And certainly it could be uh, very informative. What we know now for certain is that the Anunnaki did have advanced technologies and Modern humans probably only recently are arriving at a similar level of invented technological capability. One important event in Enlil's life points out that even with the level of power he held and received recognition for, he was not above the law. He committed a major moral or sexual transgression against a young Anunnaki woman and received punishment for it. Uh, the punishment tells us that the Anunnaki code of conduct treated leader and rank and file alike. Now, another important player at this time was Anu's daughter, Ninhursag, a Nephilim born on Nibiru, as were her two half-brothers. 
In the characteristic fashion of Anunnaki's multiple naming practices, Nudhursag, which meant Great Lady, was also known as Sud and Ninma, Ninti, and Mami, was the nurse who was in charge of Sirupak, Nephilim Medical Center. Her largest claim to fame was her partnership with Inki in the, gem- the genetic development of the primitive human workers. One tablet reference tells us that one day while working in the lab on that project, she got drunk and called over to Inky. How good or bad is man's body? As my heart prompts me, I can only make its fate good or bad. After producing several imperfectly functioning miscreations, Ninti, her name is the lady who gives life, finally created a perfect human specimen. And according to Sitchin, this being was so much akin to the gods that one text even went so far as to point out that the mother goddess gave her creature man a skin as the skin of a god. A smooth, hairless body, quite different than those of the shaggy ape man. That was the basis of their uh, work. Looking at another episode in her science experiences captured on tablet records, we find that when word came of the coming flood, Enlil called on all Nephilim to Sipar so that they could be prepared to board spacecraft to lift off when the tsunami arrived. And then her was among those who boarded a craft to ride out the storm from above. And she observed the devastation of the deluge swept away all things in its path, drowning multitudes of earthlings below. And she was absolutely shocked at the complete devastation. According to the records, the goddess saw and she wept. Her lips were covered with feverishness. My creatures have become like flies, she said. They filled the rivers like dragonflies. Their fatherhood was taken by the rolling sea. By the time the sea subsided, her creations were gone. When in her saga, or Ninti, depending on what reference is made to her, also made a brave and noticeable contribution as the peacemaker ended the, the war known as the Second Pyramid War. This conflict pitted the uh, Inkyites against Inliites over control of the Sinai spaceport. Now, the Giza area was under Inky control, given at the time of the partition of Earth territories by Anu. However, it, it later became uh, occupied by Inlaite forces when the Sinai was covered because it held the spaceport. Uh, Ninurtra, Enlil's foremost son, took up the challenge to wrest the Sinai from what he called the usurpers. And this war, including its final battle, was fought in Giza and was led by Enlil. The battle of what was known as the Pyramid Wars were vicious and ferocious, according to the tablet reports. And during those wars, the nurture's brilliant weapon caused horrendous devastation. It could blind a victim, and it appears to also have had uh, nuclear warheads. On that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back to talk more about the Pyramid Wars and... In our next show, until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.